Hello, Jonathan. Good morning, Gary. <laughs> Welcome to the latest Wait of our podcasts. <laughs> Everything okay? Wait a second. Yeah. Yes. I had you. I was answering on. I was answering you on two computers at once, as it turned out. <laughs> uh, so I turned the other one off. This was very bizarre because I heard you and me twice. Oh, that is odd. Obviously, we're, 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 we're now exposing all of our technical expertise here. Well, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's... Is it, but, is this, uh, how, have, how have you been? I've been quite well. I've been sort of working away, trying to sort of keep on top of family stuff and on top of work stuff. You know, I got some contributors' copies of some books in the mail this week, which was nice. Um, I finally got my copies of the Peter Beagle Best Of that I edited, which I was very happy about. Uh, and also subterranean. Oh, oh yeah, yeah finished. finished books. Yeah. Well, it's it's weird because this is the first time where I got the contributors' copies after the book went out of print. That's a could be a record. You know, it's like it, it came out in February or March, I think, and they just took a long time to get here. And I also they also sent me a copy of their preposterous complete edition of the Martian Chronicles, which was very kind. You know. Which is the you know the big three hundred oh the gigantic thing yeah it's the one with all the scripts and stuff in it and yeah half of it are scripts of yeah bad adaptations of the Martian Chronicles for movies that never got made yes yeah um, it reminds me a lot of those oh well, who is it a Gauntlet Press uh, uh, Bradbury books I mean it's, I think it's better than most of those but I mean reminds me of them they did a lot of those heavily annotated extended blah blah kind of things. Cause there's oh, what's... every story, yeah, every story remotely related to Fahrenheit 451, that sort of thing. Yeah, because I, I think there's did, didn't you once say to me there's a biographer or somebody who works with him or a bibliographer who works with Bradbury and they're sort of going through every box and finding every single thing or something. Well, there were three or four of his last collections that basically consisted of um, I can't remember which one it was. I think maybe Don Albright going through his basement and simply finding stories he'd never submitted, stories had been rejected, mm. uh, which is one of the reasons in those late Bradbury anthologies you get brand new stories, but they're brand new stories that um, maybe Bradbury you know, uh, decided to let lie. Yeah. And now he can sell anything. The same thing happened with Philip Jose Farmer with um, uh, some people going through uh, his basement and finding stories, and there was mm -hmm. inc including one which was a Western novel had begun until finally he had to explain to uh, a, a perfectly good novelist who had been sort of commissioned by uh, by Betty and 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 some um, friends of the family to to finish this western novel and, and and Phil said I didn't finish that western novel for a reason it wasn't going anywhere it wasn't any good I you write your own stuff. <laughs> There's also been been a couple of books announced lately which really fit into this category that I got really mixed feelings about. You know, and I don't want to sort of dis detract anybody from going and buying the books because I'm sure they're terrific. But uh, yeah, it's this thing where you get the revised and expanded edition of some form of classic book, particularly a collection. I mean, Harlan is kind of infamous in some ways in my mind for wanting to revisit old work. So adding more stories to Deathbird stories or adding more stories to the Martian Chronicles. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but when I see them, what I it's like they just announced a quite beautiful looking uh, first uh, expanded edition of Deathbird stories. It's coming I didn't out. Know about that. Oh yeah, yeah, it's coming out in a few months from Subterranean Press, and I, uh -huh. I strongly recommend. He says, you know, that anybody who loves Harlan Ellison's work and loves that book should rush off and you know check it out. It's gonna. But my own feeling was that's awesome, but maybe I'll want to go and buy a first edition of Deathbird stories because I actually really loved the Dylan's cover. And I like the original stories, and I don't really want 
more stories. If you know what I mean. This is this, no. This is exactly the sense I've always had, and it's it's a, it's a lot like getting a DVD with a director's cut of a movie, which is an hour and a half longer, and mm-hmm. you realize that somebody at the studio, as much as we like to say that they're venal accountants, somebody at the studio may have thought, <laughs> no, this really doesn't need to be a three and a half hour movie. <laughs> well, I, I think the great example within the field has to be, uh, and I, I don't know if we've touched on this before, and it's got nothing to do, no, no implication for the the Ellison book or anything, uh, but the Heinlein re-edits that we were published posthumously. Uh, you know, uh, Red, I knew you were going to mention that. I think there was a, 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 an uncut or an original uh, version of Red Mars or one of the ju- juveniles. Was it Red Mars? Oh, the, Red the, Planet. There's a bunch, though. I mean, they did, there was an uncut version of Red Planet. They did a new ending on Podcana Mars. They oh, did yeah. the, the expanded edition of Stranger in a Strange Land. You know? Uh, apparently, there's a version of The Number of the Beast that's has an entire extra third at the end of the novel, you know, that was omitted for some reason. And and I'm not sure that's good. I mean, I wonder if this is, you know, in a sense, when we start talking about, as we did a couple of weeks ago, um, online publishing, if somebody mm, yeah. uh, basically manages to get a Hugo nomination for a book which has not yet appeared in print, you're seeing the author's uh, cut of it. And, mm. and what you're doing uh, in uh, completely unedited manuscripts that people put on the web uh, are you denying the agency of the publisher or the editor or the agent or anyone else to some to some extent you're saying the, what the author wants to say is what the author should be allowed to say yeah. and to some extent what we're doing is go with these Heinlein things we're going back and seeing what he would have done had he posted this stuff online <laughs> in 1961 and I don't think I really want to know that <laughs> well yeah it all, it all sort of grows out of that auteur theory that you know with directors and all that sort of thing doesn't it that you know the pure uh, pure artistic vision when not necessarily, it's not necessarily what you got at the end. I mean, it'd be one thing if there was, you know, let's say with Strange in a Strange Land, Heinlein writes it, he's forced begrudgingly, which I can't believe, but begrudgingly to edit his book, right? And he has this long correspondence, and you can see he's complaining, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that, and I have this pristine version that is it, it's how it should be, whether right or wrong. I'm not aware of that ever happening with the Heinlein book. Now, it may, and I don't know if anybody out there in the Heinlein Society land is listening or anything, and they want to e- you know, tweet at us or email it separately and tell us, But and Charles would have known. But my guess is whether Heinlein had, had had any qualms about the editing or not, he had well and truly moved on. I mean, it was 20-something years afterwards. Yes. You know? I mean, the classic example in mainstream literature was um, Thomas Wolfe, and somebody yeah. a few years ago, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, uh, published, I think, a university press, the unedited original manuscript of, I think it was Look Homeward Angel, or something which, which Maxwell yeah. Perkins had cut by something like a half. It was a 2,000-page novel, and I never tried to read it. I talked to some people who did, and they said that um, – and, and a lot of Hang people second, find Gary. Thomas Wolfe hard enough to read as it is. Yes, I'm busy right now. Can I call you back? But um, the edited version was at least yep. readable, was at least something that, uh, yep. that you could slog your way through. In other words, as we were talking about Ted Chang being a good self-editor. Not all writers are good self-editors. No, they're not. And there are excellent editors in the field who have, um, who have shaped novels, and authors have frequently given them full credit for having shaped the novels. And I've, I've talked to any number of writers who basically – uh, described an editor as having saved my ass on that one because yeah, I would yeah. have done something really bad. Exactly. Exactly true. So, you know, it, it's... 
I'm not sure it's always a good thing. It's like, as much as I admire the whole VIE project that we were talking about the other week, uh, the Vance Integral Edition project, there was an element of going back and restoring stuff that I don't know that Jack necessarily had a huge problem with or not. Even things which I think were actually mistakes, like changing the names of books back to his original titles and all that sort of thing. So suddenly I think the, di- the Dying Earth becomes mm-hmm. oh, Malazan something or other or whatever it was, or whatever, I forget what the title of it was, but... And you just think, well, that's sort of beside the point. I, I, it missed something. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, when I see the Martian Chronicles, I think, this is great. And I think for the crazy people who love the Martian Chronicles, the complete edition is brilliant. But I also want to have that for the original book. Same with the Deathbird stories. The other thing which is important in terms of getting a historical perspective uh, is that the Martian Chronicles in 1950 is what had the influence that did. That selection of stories, which was a compromise, as I understand it, between Ray Bradbury and and Walter Bradbury at Doubleday, no relationship, who had worked very carefully with him. Uh, That's the book that has had the impact on the field. Death stories, uh, and in that form, is what had the impact it had on the field. Um, I think part of this comes about from a confusion between... um, as, as science fiction and fantasy and horror texts kind of move into this area of literature, of, of, of academic literature, there's an urge on the part of a lot of readers and fans, and it's a perfectly legitimate and, uh, and worthwhile urge to have the original manuscripts available. Yeah. And what they used to call a very orum edition of, you know, you, you, you'd find uh, – uh, there was a very warm edition of, um, of Frankenstein uh, mm-hmm. last year, for example. It had all of the bits, apparently, that Percy had written, which really were not as good as I, re- I looked at it. I, and, and, and Percy, mm. guess what? Percy is not a Percy Shelley was not as good a horror story writer as his wife <laughs> by a long shot. Um, and from a scholarly point of view, from an academic point of view, somebody studying English romanticism, that's an invaluable book. It does not improve Frankenstein in the least. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 adding literary history, folding literary history into a text. Yes, my point is that 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 complete text, that uncut, that very warm text, whatever you want to call it, need not replace the original text because the original text, as I said, has a place in history. Yes, I agree. And, 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 and there's some cases. Yeah. There's some cases like I, I know uh, uh, Algis Budris hated the title Rogue Moon. Yep. And finally did have it republished, I think, under the title of Death Machine. Mm-hmm. But the text was the same. The book was the same. It was simply a, mm-hmm. a fight over a title. And by by and large, his title was much more descriptive of the novel than, than the uh, uh, title, which I forgot who put that title on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You're trying to remember. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, and I was—I uh, think I had a pyramid edition of, but I forgot, I forgot who did it originally. I mean, minor changes like that, I suppose, are all right. Um, as far as the new Deathbird stories, my guess is that what Harlan will be doing will be adding some stories to it. But Harlan, by and large, doesn't mess with the, his old stories. He doesn't mess with the text. No, no. Uh, you can rearrange stories. You can add stories to it. I mean, God knows Harlan had recombined his stories in a hundred different ways in various anthologies mm. and, and, and and things over the years. Um, always with this, uh, in some ways, ingratiating habit of including uh, s- some really not very good stories <laughs> that he was very fond of. Together with some classics, so there was there was a period of if you wanted to get a boy and his dog, you'd have to read some stories that he published in Super Science in 1957, mm. uh, which he just was really really fond of. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in a way, he used his best stories as as a way of um, propping up his his less good stories, 
And as a result, uh, you never uh, had really until uh, Terry Dowling did that massive thing. Yeah. You never really had uh, a best of Harlan Ellison. Yeah. No, no, it's true. And I don't know that you ever, well, whether or not you ever really will. Uh, and I'm sure that if anyone ever attempts such a beast, they'll never really agree. You know, no one will ever agree on what should go into it. You know, I mean, for a man who's written, I don't know how many hundreds of short stories. Uh, and as with any creative person, as we've said before, a batch of them are going to be, yeah, you know, best left to posterity. But uh, there's a core that you know, do need to be reprinted and are phenomenal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and that, you know, that it would be nice to see well, those and, in single. And, 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 and that goes back also to the distinction between what serious students or, or scholars of the field might want to know. I was I did a book on Harlan, and it was mm -hmm. interesting to find some of the very earliest stories he'd published in 1956 and 57 uh, contained significant elements of what would later be classic stories. Yeah. And, and and you can see that growth developing. You I can see how much better he got yeah. in this in, in in the 60s than he had been in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, but from a point of view of understanding his work, it's very interesting to watch that happen. It's one yeah. interesting to watch the progression. I think the average reader, the problem with that is you have some new reader who's, I've heard of this guy, Harlan Ellison, I want to pick up a book, and you pick up a book that has uh, a, a lot of these uh, less distinguished stories from the 50s in it, your reaction is going to be, what is the big deal? Yeah, um, yeah. You, you want to encounter the classic stories first. Yes, you do. I think you, you very much do. Um, and I mean, that was, I guess, the argument behind something like doing the Fritz Leiber book that Charles and I did together, you know, so you could have a single book that was everything. And I, I very much like the idea of having two classes of collection, you know, the separate kind of best of collection. I mean, those wonderful Del Rey books that were done back in the 70s that collected so much, you know, mm. fine fiction. The best, yeah, the best of series. Uh, and, and some of those were virtually, as far as I could tell, definitive, the best of Stanley Weinbaum, mm. uh, Pretty much everything you needed to read by Stanley Weinbaum. Not that there was that much to begin with. No. The mistake, I think, I, I think here, here's a good distinction. Uh, uh, there was during the um, uh, uh, Sturgeon series that uh, was the North Atlantic that's doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a beautiful series. I yes. love the series. I am fascinated with Sturgeon. Uh, but the first two, but it was essentially chronological. Yes. Which meant that the first couple of volumes were. Nothing by Sturgeon you'd ever heard of. No. You know, you're in volume three, and you start getting some classics. At the same time that those volumes were coming out, those beautifully appointed volumes, which are just uh, invaluable for anybody who wants to understand the development of a writer, not just a science fiction writer, but yes. the, all the struggles that Sturgeon went through trying mm -hmm. to become mainstream. At the same time, in the middle of that, I think Vintage did a collection of, the, uh, of, of Sturgeon stories, yes. which were that just the classic Sturgeon stories. Now, the point is, of course, that a new Sturgeon reader would be much better off with that oh, Vintage yes. book than with yes. the first volume or two of, of the North Atlantic series. Exactly. Well, it's, uh, it's just like how, the way that uh, last year, Nesfa did their six-volume Best of Zelazny, or, you know, mm -hmm. or, or six-volume Collected Zelazny. Uh, but there's already a book out there. I think I think it goes under the title of The Doors of His Face, The Lamps of His Mouth, which is basically mm -hmm. a best of the short fiction. And really, that's all. Well, that's where anyone else should start. I mean, sp spending $150 on six hardcover volumes is ridiculous for a ca you know, a comparatively casual reader. Um, well, and it's, it's it's ridiculous even for a fairly serious science fiction reader, unless there's especially serious about Zelazny. Yeah. Um, I mean, I am sorry that it's hard to make a commercial case for some of these books. Uh, I mean, I, for a while, went around talking about trying to do a best of Stephen Baxter. And not because, I mean, I think Stephen's a good writer, but because I thought that he's such a diverse and 
prolific writer that a, a short 100,000, 110,000 word best of might make sense of him for people. Um, and I thought that would be a valuable thing. But given that all his short story collections are in print, it's very hard to make a, a commercial case for doing it, you know, which I, I regret. I think that the other case for that in the case, because uh, the, the other uh, best of I was looking at it was was uh, was your uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and my first reaction is, well, okay, <clears throat> all these are misnomers to begin with, except with the case of somebody like a Harlan Ellison who has essentially written short stories. I mean, the best of Kim Stanley Robinson are the Mars sequence and the Antarctica and, 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 and the novels. <laughs> well, but, yeah. But there's the, oh, there's the other Stan Robinson who has written consistently interesting short stories. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, okay, technically I'm arguing that the title should be the best short fiction of Sure. Uh, which is exactly what it is. I think in the case of somebody like Stan Robinson, who people think of as a novelist, that's a very valuable book to have, um, mm. even though he's had a couple of collections of stories out. Um, and he's written some classic stories like The Lucky Strike that are reprinted everywhere. Oh, sure. I think a lot of people don't have the sense of how much in many ways he dominated the thinking about alternate histories. Uh, for a period of about uh, almost a decade there, uh, in, in, in thinking about historiography and hist philosophical processes. Now, that thinking got bigger and bigger and bigger in the novels, but if you really want to understand how he thinks about these things, then the short fiction serves you very well. Oh, I think so. I think, I, I think it also it illustrates that, I mean, he, he, was, he was more than, well, he was very much that. He was th that part of the alternate history, you know, discussion, evolution, whatever, and also very much the other side of the discussion in the cyberpunk debate at the time. You know, he, he was one of the you know the humanists who were sort of seen as being, you know, the other side of uh, of the the equation for his generation when stuff like the Wild Shore and this short fiction came out, because of course you're right. I mean, after probably the early 1990s, I guess, the, you know, most of the significant short fiction that he wrote was in The Martians. You know that that, that mm -hmm. pendant volume to the Mars series, and I think a story that's in the best of the the original story at the end, is really the first significant story he's written in a decade probably because he is exclusive, really exclusively yeah. a novelist you know uh yeah but the the early short fiction i mean and, and yes it could you're right it could have been called you know something 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 the best short fiction of the stuff that he wrote up until you know the katmandu stuff and the the early mars stuff and stuff is really important short fiction i think well, I think it was seminal at the time. I think he was a, one of the things that you begin to understand uh, looking at the short fiction of a major figure in the field is that to a large extent that's where their influence came from because to mm. some extent <clears throat> once, um, once somebody like Kim Stanley Robinson writes a Mars trilogy, not very many people are going to try to do that again. In other no. words, it's okay, that's all we've done with you, – you can have – you'll have Ben Bova writing Mars and so forth, but mm -hmm. that's Ben Bova doing Ben Bova. Um, Essentially, if you want to figure out where the dialogue is, it's it's, it's going to be mostly in the short fiction. You may, when you mentioned the humanist movement, it, it, it occurred to me that uh, when you think of the other people most famously involved in that, like Kessel and Kelly, mm -hmm. they've all had more influential careers in short fiction than they have in novels. Mm -hmm. By and large, that uh, I, I wonder if that's there's probably an article in that for somebody. It, why did the humanists? Why do the the, the the cyberpunks were writing novels left and right, and the humanists had some good novels, but by and large they were, uh, and are known largely as short story writers. I think um, that's true, and I mean even you know, even today, I mean it's it's interesting that sort of if you think of the cyberpunks, I mean I mean Sterling continues to write vital short fiction. 
I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, his novels have dwindled, uh, dwindled a little bit. Gibson, of course, is a major novelist. His new one, I think you should have a copy of it, Zero History. I have it Zero yes. History is, um, you know, the next big one. But, I mean, he's, he's really now a major novelist out there in the world. Whereas, you know, if you, go, if you look to the humanist, you're right. I mean, Michael Swanwick has written fine novels, but he's really best known as a short fiction writer, I think, to the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same for, you know, the group, with the exception, the exception of, of Stan, I think, because of the Mars trilogy. Um. I think it's interesting, of course, that, you know, Stan won the World Fantasy Award before he ever won a Hugo or a Nebula. I did not know that. What did he win the World Fantasy Award for? Black Air. Oh, yes. Which is a, you know, a, a, a brilliant piece of work, you know. Um, and I remember, you know, just having my breath taken away by it at, when I first read it all those years ago. And, it, you know, that sort of thing doesn't sort of sit well or sit consistently, I guess, with a casual picture of the kind of writer he is. He, you know, if you looked at the author of Galileo's Dream and the Science and the Capital series, you wouldn't necessarily think that you're reading a World Fantasy Award winner. Uh, no, it would not, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to you at all. There are other writers like that as well who uh, can be perfectly fine novelists. Part of, part of this I'm thinking about now is because I'm looking at a lot of the year's best. I'm looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I just finished reading Gardner's. Yep. Uh, yours, yours was way back. But there, it turns out, you know, there is primarily or largely science fiction. There, there are four this year. Yep. Uh, and I'm looking at, and one of the people that jumps out every year in these anthologies is is, is Nancy Cress. Yes. A perfectly fine novelist, but I think she's been in Gardner's year's best more often than any other single writer. He can correct me on that, but he's, she's certainly up there in the top three Pretty or four. Pretty much. Yep. And. Uh, and I was reading uh, Act One. Well, here's one of the interesting things about her. I just noticed, uh, even though uh, Act One is up for you know was, was nominee for Hugo Nebula and Locus Sword, um, there were three different stories in three different years' best anthologies yes. from Nancy Kratz. and that's fascinating to me because that indicates to me that uh, here's somebody who's, who's reasonably prolific, yep. enormously competent. I mean, I was sitting here thinking. What, what's so good about Nancy Cress? And some of it, some of it really has to do with the fact that she teaches writing as well as she does, because yeah. this, uh, it, it's she. She in some ways reminds me of Silverberg's short fiction, in that she's okay. very, very talented as a uh, in, in the craft of short fiction. Mm-hmm. And there, there are other people who uh, occasionally show up. She's always there. Yes. Uh, uh, and yet, you know, certainly Beggars in Spain is a fine novel. But the, but the novella was better. The novella was actually better, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and she's also she's, she's someone who I could see. A best of would be a, an interesting thing to assemble. I think, again, most of her short f- fiction collections, with the exception of maybe the first one that Arkham did a long time ago, I think I they're mean, all in print. So that would probably get in the way of doing it. So um, that's unfortunate. And I, and I realize it's probably mostly an intellectual exercise for somebody like, like us to sort of sit there and go, it would be interesting to see the book assembled and to see what shape of the career that it would synopsize. Because that's what the book kind of does. It gives you that sort of miniature version of the career, mm-hmm. you know, which is interesting. It gives you a sense of, 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 of what the influence is as well, because uh, as we were talking about a bit earlier, there was, you know, up until the mid-1950s, there were no careers outside of short fiction and in, in, in science fiction to speak of. Yep. And throughout throughout most of the decades since, including, well, again, we were looking at, you can put together a collection of, of Clark stories and get a very good flavor of what Clark is like from that. Yep. Um, obviously, Bradbury, Sturgeon, and so forth and so on. 
it's only in the last three or four decades that uh, that people have been become either exclusively novelists mm. or have written so little short fiction that they that that's not representative. Yes. Um, uh, so in, in in that sense, I think Cress is. It's not a throwback. She writes very contemporary fiction, and she's certainly up on her, you know, biology and stuff in in in, in, in her stories. But she is somebody who uh, mm. you know, puts a lot of craft into short fiction and a lot of effort into it, and seems to enjoy writing it. Um, there, and th- and there are other short fiction writers who never quite seem to break out, but are usually very competent. Uh, Yep. Garcia Robertson is one of them. Yep. Um, actually, uh, Golden Griffin has done a pretty good job of representing a lot of short fiction yes. writers who, uh, who who do that sort of thing. Yes. Um, in fact, they, they had a real streak there for a while where they're putting out really seminal collections. Uh, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like the you know, the first Andy Duncan collection. They did a very fine Neil Barrett collection, uh, an excellent, probably the best of the Paul Di Filippo collections was the one they did, and a, a whole batch of others. So you know, um, it is. It's interesting to see how short fiction synopsizes stuff. One of the curious things that's uh, that you also have to think about when uh, you're looking at a lot of. Uh, Year's best anthologies, and I keep we keep hearing that all the, all the year's best anthologies are dying, and I know that none of them are doing as well as they once were. Mm. But uh, there's still uh, 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 there's still a sense in which this is the way you get into the field if you don't want to uh, read a very difficult novel. In other words, we're talking about uh, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about entry level novels. Yeah, and what novels from 2010 would you give to somebody who's only occasionally read science fiction or or doesn't read science fiction at all. Yeah. And I suppose, depending on what you consider a science fiction novel, um, most of the people I know I could recommend, you know, Kraken to, but yep. is Kraken a science fiction novel? No, it's not. Eh, not really. Uh-huh. Could you recommend The Dervish House? I think I could. I think uh, McDonald is getting closer and closer to the present in these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would I, I would recommend that except it's dense. The, yeah. the, the issue with McDonald, Bonnie, McDonald doesn't write uh, difficult, convoluted science fiction. He writes convoluted, complex novels, <laughs> which have science fiction in them. Yes. Uh, and he has a bunch of characters. I mean, this is a. It's interesting that uh, what people I think overlook about McDonald is that he, in, in each of these three, I guess it's a trilogy now of of, of developing economies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with River of Gods in Brazil and this one. That he changes his technique every time out. Yeah. Uh, he changes his focus. You know, uh, Brazil is three, uh, three completely separate time periods and three mm. uh, time strands that are brought together, uh, covering this vast sweep of time. Uh, basically, uh, River of Gods had almost a kind of, uh, to me, it almost had a kind of stand on Zanzibar field about what India would look like in another couple of decades. And this one is one week. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's 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 actually it's only five days. Uh, in the lives of primarily four or five characters, and still everything gets folded into it. I mean, he's somebody who is widely recognized for uh, really clever science fiction inventions and really convincing portraits of the cities uh, yeah. or cultures he's writing about, but he's also somebody who likes to play with uh, with, with narrative forms in a way that uh, is, is often overlooked. Yeah. Uh, 
And that's what uh, I think comes across in the, in the Derby House. But in terms of looking at the year's best anthologies, Nancy Kress is one of the people. You want to give somebody a, some science fiction stories, give them a Nancy Kress story. Give them a Robert Charles Wilson story. Sure. Yes. Well, you could uh, certainly she give and, But you know what you don't give them? Well, the, the top story of the year by consensus of all you year's best editors. Yes. And uh, it's Peter Watts. If the, yeah, the Island is not a story that I would ex- expect somebody to, to come to as a non-science fiction reader and respond to very well. I mean, I think one of the reasons it's successful, one of the reasons I think Paolo's book, Wind- The Wind-Up Girl, is successful, is it's a science fiction story for science fiction readers. And I think people respond yes. well to those coming along every now and again. I mean, The Wind-Up Girl, apart from being a very, very good book, is also the right kind of book at the right kind of time. I think the field wanted something like that and someone like that, and it's responded accordingly. Um, and I think you can see that with um, the Peter Watts story, which I, I would be thrilled if it won the Hugo uh, in August or September. But um, would your casual reader respond to it? <clears throat> I don't know. I think they'd find it quite challenging. And and there were a number of stories you know, in that book that were, were like that, but also that were at the other end of the spectrum that were much more... I mean, it's like you could... I think you could give a casual reader... A, you know, a John Scalzi novel, not because in any mm, way that's that, true. Not because in any way they are um, not fine novels, but just because the, the they, they are they're not dense in that way. They're they're very accessible kind of books. They don't have the kind of uh, yeah density for want of a better word. And I mean, I think one of the things that Gardner used to say that his year's best for was it was supposed to be that entry level book. I mean, he always I think he used to sort of talk about. There being sort of some kid in some town somewhere in the Midwest where nothing ever got to, and you know, sort of, you know, a copy of his year's best sort of floats down on a parachute into the middle of nowhere, and you could extrapolate the entire field for for the year from his one book. Now, I I don't think he's ever done that. Actually, I think he's I think he's done that, but he has the advantage that uh, no one else has of enormous amounts of space devoted only to science fiction. Yeah. Uh, so there, there there's a time, and I. Probably shouldn't mention the stories, but uh, the story I'm reading now, which is actually not in Gardner's book, it's in one of the others, that uh, is almost annoying to a veteran science fiction reader because it, it spends the first several pages explaining the tropes in such a basic way that yeah. – uh, which it has to be a Generation Starship story. And the, the, I think most science fiction readers who had read very much are going to think, okay, haven't you, haven't you ever read Universe? Come on, let's get on with the story. Let's do something different here. Yeah. Um, and so, so it seems to me that that's a challenge for any anthologist who wants to appeal to uh, a new readership and a veteran readership at the same time. It's, uh, and it's a challenge to any writer who wants to do that. Mm. Uh, because how do you write a story that both explains a trope to a new reader and doesn't beat it into the ground for a veteran reader? It's an enormous challenge, particularly if you happen to be the kind of writer who's writing, I guess, more into whatever the scientific concept is, rather than necessarily into the characters and setting of the story, uh, both of which are perfectly valid ways of approaching a science fiction story. But you, know, you get the feeling that, say, a Greg Egan writes into the idea as hard mm-hmm. as he can, and one of the things that can do, though I think he's sort of fighting against that and writing against that more now, is make the books denser, more interesting to a hardcore audience, but also less accessible to a casual audience, you know, which is one of the prices you pay for that. Which one, and one of the effects of that is that it leaves some of the entry-level stuff open to, to non-science fiction writers. 
to uh, you, you get uh, Ishigawa, you get Never Let Me Go, for example, writing a, a very basic clone story, mm. which is not surprising. It's it's not, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, in science fiction terms, almost the only thing I could think to compare it with would be uh, Kate Wilhelm's where Late the Sweet Bird Sang, which mm-hmm. is decades old now. Uh, but by and large, science fiction readers don't need to have your basic clone story anymore. And if somebody wants to use that, and it's, that's a very good novel, by the way, yeah. uh, because it's about characters that wants to get into relationships, it wants to get into the you know knowing your place in life sort of thing uh, that uh, that mainstream writers are interested in. And cloning happens to be a very effective way to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, no, a lot of mainstream writers don't do that as effectively as. As he does, but yep. but there is that possibility that uh, you know that the novel of character can use science fiction tropes in a way that science fiction writers may not be able to anymore because you've got these cynical readers. It's uh, uh, I, I used to know the guy who was the editor of Downbeat magazine, yep. the great uh, Chuck Zuber was the, uh, the great jazz magazine, and he was saying how hard it is to be a tenor saxophone player, to be a veteran tenor saxophone player, because. Uh, you, you'll be giving a concert at a club, and you get these really hardcore jazz fans in the audience, and and you, and you go through this really cool riff, and you've got somebody in the audience saying, "Ah, oh, he did that in 1957. He's just <laughs> copying himself." How can he? <laughs> Science yeah. fiction readers, <clears throat> writers sometimes have the same problem. Yes, exactly. They readers do, do. know way too much <clears throat> about the field. Yes. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's been the, yeah, arguably the, you know, the, the problem ever since Gutenberg did his thing, and we had copies of things to compare to one another. Uh, and certainly, is the, is the modern problem for any form of art, really. You know, you can't go out and be a singer without everybody able to compare it to not only everything you've ever done, but anything anybody else has ever done remotely like it, and so on. You know, it's it's the price you pay. But yeah. On the other hand, the, the, the question is also a, a question between new writers coming into the field. Do you really have to build on on this mass of material, which frankly has been mastered by fewer and fewer people in each generation? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, can you simply go back and write, uh, let's say, a clone story or a, a, a crazed robot story and get away with it? And it comes down to technique. I think you can do that. I'm trying to think if there's a good example of a crazed robot story recently. <laughs> uh, there probably is. No, I, well, I think they happen, but I just don't think that uh, year's best editors pay much attention to them. I think there's a batch of entry-level things around, but they're just not seen as being... I guess it's being seen just just as that. It, it's like you know the, the the perennial reviewer problem about, you know, there are the books we're, you know, we're reading, The Dervish House, whatever else, and then other ones which are perfectly well executed story you know, novels that many many people enjoy reading but we don't see much point in commenting on because it's been done before and so mm-hmm. you get things now admittedly I'm not sure they're of the quality level but I, I suspect things like a lot of the door Greenberg anthologies the story's never perfectly serviceable but we've all read it before kind of a thing um, in a way, they're covers. I mean, they're to, mm-hmm. to, keep, to keep the recording industry co- <laughs> going. Yes, yeah, so, so, okay. Somebody, uh, there, there's at least one CD that was decades ago. There was nothing but versions of Round Midnight. Yeah. Uh, everybody's cover of Round Midnight. They're covers of Dylan songs. They're covers of mm-hmm. Leonard Cohen songs. They're colors of covers of Lady Gaga songs now. Mm-hmm. Has, has, yes. Has covers. Uh, so, to some extent, a story which is essentially a cover. Isn't maybe you're right? Maybe very well executed. Maybe in some cases as interesting as the original. But if we're talking about this ongoing dialogue in the field, it's not really advancing it much. No, no. Um, and that's I think you know. I, I guess that the thing is that that's where you and I read. 
we, you know, we read in the ongoing dialogue. Uh, and that's a, perhaps something which, you know, which an outsider, you know, someone who, who never maybe meets us or talks to us and just sort of listens to a podcast or sees an anthology or reads a review or whatever else, they don't necessarily know that immediately that's that's where our interest lies. And so that, uh, that, that informs all of our opinions. But this is where dialogue is multiplex as opposed to I – mean, Charles used to have a very – clear idea of what the dialogue was. Mm. Uh, it's amazing. We keep coming back to Charles. And I think we both agreed his idea was a little bit narrower than than what you and I might have wanted. His dialogue be, essentially began with Heinlein. Yeah. And you can trace you, you, you can trace a kind of Newtonian physics pool ball reaction <laughs> to reaction to reaction of, of people reacting to Heinlein and reacting to reactions of Heinlein. You can do it with Neuromancer again. But again, that's, that's one arena. Uh, yeah. One of the best stories this year, I'm just thinking about best stories this year because yeah, of yeah. Um, reading all this stuff is the Vandana Singh story in yes. Fantasies, <clears throat> yep. which is not... Uh, Particularly engaged in any of these dialogues, except possibly the dialogue which now involves uh, developing economies, non-Western cultures, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a good story about uh, a mathematician uh, yes. in, in a culture which is falling apart around him. It makes it, it, it has a lot of the feeling of science fiction, but the dialogues that she's involved with in that story yeah. are not the same dialogues that – uh, that Heinlein or Gibson started. There are dialogues oh. that have to do with, okay, science fiction is literature now, and science fiction has to answer to its ability to portray characters in complex, changing circumstances, mm -hmm. which the story does brilliantly. Yes, I think that's completely true. Uh, and I mean, and it's interesting as well because, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder whether, you know, one of the ongoing, you know, discussions in, in the field, particularly, at least, in, you, know, to, to, you know, to my awareness, is this. The push for diversity, uh, this uh, emphasis of the importance of in, of being inclusive, in, uh, both in terms of writers and the kind of characters and stories and everything. And I wonder if, if it's a a cultural push to shift the dialogue, you know, to, to, to move the conversation from the, the Heinlein to Gibson dialogue to another dialogue. And I wonder if that's why you see... Um, yeah, you know, if if that's what you see in the pages of a Clark's World or a fantasy magazine, and everything else, mm -hmm. Sto stories which maybe, in a number of cases, are by no means all, wouldn't necessarily be seen as being enormously of interest within the context of the Heinlein Gibson dialogue, but but in the context of this other dialogue, are, mm -hmm. you know, and and perhaps that's where our old friend, who as you say, we keep coming back to, um, where he chafed with at, at it. Because his dialogue was that dialogue, and this dialogue is another one that belongs to maybe another generation or a next phase of the evolution of the field, or you know. I think it is, and I think it's a uh, the, the multicultural dialogue is only one of of several new ones, mm. but it's one that uh, is especially challenging and and is is more and more. Uh, I don't. I hate to use the word relevant. Mm. More and more courageous on the part of some of the writers that that are dealing with it. I know. Um, uh, was, uh, Nadia Korafor was the uh, guest of honor at Wiscon yeah. and had a um, – we had a very nice time and she was mentioning that some of the reactions she gets to her African-based stories, um, she's getting pushed – she's getting pushbacks from African critics and readers because uh, – Yes. Not because she's writing science fiction fantasy but because yeah. – She's, she's not doing what she's supposed to do as uh, as an African, and in her case, literally an African American writer, whose parents mm. were, yeah, were, yeah. were immigrants. Yeah. 
and so forth. Uh, so that so there is this sense that um, you're fighting two fronts at once on the uh, if, if you're going to move sci science fiction or fantasy into a new direction. You're going to get, and Chip Delaney used to uh, talk about this, that there was a, a certain expectation of young black writers in the 60s to write like Richard Wright or, or, or Ralph sure. Ellison or yeah. uh, to, to, to not to, to not write uh, uh, anything non-realistic because realism was 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 you know your assignment. Well, I, um, I could certainly see. So, a, you know, I think culturally in the '60s, you know, some looking at, at you know a, a genius basically like Delaney turning at Babel 17 or Nova when you really wanted them to be writing I don't know young culturally relevant angry young black man stories, and it may well be that from I don't know from from Chip's point of view, he was doing that in the context of what he was doing. But that wasn't good enough for these other people. To some extent, the argument that was made to him and the argument which I suspect is being made to Nettie, and they both of them have had a serious interest for years in getting um, – in, in Chip's case, to get getting you know black right readers interested in science fiction, and the whole mm -hmm. purpose of the dark matter anthology was to do that. Um, well, if, uh, on the one hand, you want to do that, and you get people saying you can't do that because you know black fiction is realistic. Yeah. Uh, then it's uh, it's 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 a double bind, really. You can't. How are you going to get new black science fiction readers if you're told you're not? allowed to write new black science fiction. I don't think that's as much of an issue. Nettie is actually very successful. Yeah. Uh, her career is, a, a very young career is enormously encouraging because uh, she's going to do more and more interesting things. Mm -hmm. Nalo is having a very successful career as a writer. She's gaining a lot of respect doing this. And, um, and they both have fairly forceful personalities and very strong egos. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in the negative sense. No, very no, I understand. strong sense of what they're doing. Yes. Uh, to be able to get away with that. Well, I get the because feeling that you couldn't do what they're doing without it. Uh, no, but I, it, it's not just the, uh, uh, the the multicultural aspect of science fiction. If you want to move science fiction into any one of these new dialogues, yes. if you want to write science fiction stories, which are essentially character stories with uh, science fiction elements in them, uh, you're going to get pushback. I mean, Silverberg, yes. this is not new. No, Silverberg no, was getting pushback for his character stories in the 70s. Well, I was going to say, I mean, sh surely, in fact, even though it may not, you know, on a casual level appear that way, that very experience is a quintessentially science fictional thing in the history of the field. You know, where, I mean, Heinlein surely must have had an incredible sense of self to forge onto, you know, the auspices of Campbell, what he was doing, and move on, move on with it. And yes, you know, the Silverberg and the New Wave, and on into people like Nettie and um, uh, Nalo. You know, you, you must be willing. You, you must have a clarity of vision, a, a, a strength of purpose, a willingness to kind of sh you know, shove against the dialogue. I mean, I've been reading Nettie's blog. I've read the, the early novels. I'm waiting for Who Fears Death uh, because I'm very interested in that. Even though I really don't like the packaging, I really don't. It just I, throws me out of the away from the the book kind of thing. But uh, I think it's really critical. Well, it happens I, I, in the I, field. The packaging is is part of the issue with these things, though, mm. because packaging is. Let's not scare anybody off. I'm going to back to. Wasn't it the paperbacks of um, uh, Octavia's Pattern Master novels mm. that had. The characters in purple or something because yeah. they didn't want to admit that these were Africans. Um, so the packaging is meant to be, in, as, as all packaging, is meant to be as inoffensive as possible um, and to somehow attract people who are interested in 
an African myth and, and kind of very contemporary yeah. issue-oriented fiction and fantasy and science fiction. It's a very interesting novel because mm-hmm. um, it's, 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 it's a novel which uh, has a lot of science fiction elements and it takes place in the far future and yet there's unexplained uh, Sudanese magic working yeah. in it yeah. uh, as well. And I, I, she's of a generation that's grown up in which, and, and Swanwick uh, is, is, is one of the ancestors of this generation, which, hey, if you want to have fantasy in the middle of a science fiction novel or science fiction in the middle of a fantasy novel, go for it. Yeah. Um, but you're going to have people who don't like it. You're going to have people who are saying, what is this? Yes. And when you look at the, um, at the, you don't see it so much in the reviews. This is one of the reasons I do look at Amazon comments, because yeah. that's one of the places where you get... Um, completely unfiltered reader responses to things. These are people yeah. who are not setting themselves up as bloggers. They're simply saying, and, and, and that's where you get the, I don't know what this novel is kind of reaction. Yeah. Or I don't like the ending of this novel, or I thought this was going to be a science fiction novel and it's not, and I'm disappointed. Uh, that's a substantial chunk of readers out there yeah. who are not eventually going to be the readers for your career, but, but you, you know, you're going to get flack from that when you, um, when you first publish a novel. Yeah. Um, if you write any novel, which is largely a character novel that has uh, all the trappings of what looked to be uh, flat-out genre uh, reader satisfaction, yeah. then it's going to be um, uh, one of the other novels, which is, I guess, out about now is, is Amelia Beamer's novel, which yes. is a zombie novel. But it's also a novel about sexual relationships and character power relationships, which mm-hmm. is really what she's been interested in in her short fiction. And I think she's. I have not seen. Oh, the only I've only seen a couple of reviews. Locust reviewed it, and PW yeah. liked it. Uh, but by and large, there are going to be people I'm predicting who are saying we need more zombies and less people talking. Um, <laughs> well, yes, but there's always that crowd, you know. Um, well, I mean, there's, but there's the other crowd that says, yeah. I mean, there's the other crowd that's going to say people are talking zombies. perfectly. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yes, there'll be people. There'll be people out there who'll say, you know, there are too, you know, there are too many zombies. Why are there zombies in this story? It doesn't belong here. It, it would be a perfectly nice other kind of book if it wasn't for all that stuff. Uh, and they that was exactly like, the next point. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that was exactly. Uh, and that, that's what makes any kind of book like that um, potentially exciting. Is that? Well, but by and large, uh, I, I suppose if I were giving advice to a young writer, we'll be going out to the uh, uh, the um, Locust Awards in about three weeks now, yes. I guess. And the Clarion people are there. Nobody ever asked me to talk to Clarion students, uh, partly because they used to ask Charles to talk to Clarion yep. students, and he would basically say, give up now. Um, <laughs> yes, he would. But I would say this. That if, you don't, if, if you write fiction that doesn't piss somebody off, you're not doing your job. Uh, by and large, you really want to try to, <laughs> to, 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 try to not, not just replicate what you've seen before. Do something. Yeah. Uh, unexpected with it. I'm I'm going to almost completely agree because because I, I always think there's a place for straight entertainment. But but yes, I I take your point completely, and I have no doubt that a book like he- Who Fears Death is going to piss somebody off. But I've got no doubt as well that it's going it you know it 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 just strikes me as a kind of book that's going to get into the field and interact with it and end up being an important book over you know a long period of time. I just have that sort of really strong feeling about it. Um, I think the other thing which is interesting about that book, and of course, what what uh, Nettie's entire career makes you think about is Africa in science fiction, which is a uh, it, it's something we never really seriously thought about as anything other than an exotic setting. And yes. to read uh, not to not to particularly 
demean Mike Resnick. That is Africa is not Mike Resnick's Africa. No. And it's not it's not Ian McDonald's Africa. And no. it's not J.G. Ballard's Africa. It feels like Africa. It feels like a it feels like a place that the author came from, not a place that the author visited, I guess. And yeah. Nettie yeah. did not come from Africa, but but there is that sense of being inside a culture that uh, is potentially um, you know potentially revolutionary for a book like that. I was thinking the same thing. McDonald, who I admire enormously, as you know, um, there is a woman, I think her name is Elizabeth Ginway, who's done a book and a couple of uh, interesting essays on Brazilian science fiction. There is a Brazilian mm-hmm. science fiction tradition. We don't see it translated. But when I read something like McDonald's Brazil, the first thing I want to know is what would science fiction from Brazil yes. look like with all this material internalized? Yes. And, and, and of course, there, there is some. It's just hard to come by. Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas, I mean, I mean, one of I think, Nettie's points, if I, if I sort of understand it correctly, and I wouldn't want to misrepresent it, but um, is that there's actually precious little, you know, fantastic fiction that comes from Africa that we're aware of. And, of course, also allowing the whole concept of Africa is an externalized myth itself and that it's all different countries and places. And as you'd imagine, on a continent right. the, si- the size it is. Um, but. I mean, looking at Nigeria alone, there was Amos Tutuola, who's always kind of held up as, but he's held up as kind of primitivist, as a kind of somebody who wrote in a more or less pidgin English and who make made use of a lot of folklore, yep. uh, which is almost uh, demeaning. But but the other issue, and this actually came up in, um, let's see, should I say? I, mean, I was trying to figure out whether I should actually reveal things that I know about. Uh, uh, certain authors and their uh, academic careers. Mm-hmm. There was a discussion that came up once. I don't think that he would mind this. It was, I was on her dissertation committee. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and one of the discussions, and it was a perfectly nice group of people uh, mm-hmm. uh, who were granting her, her her degree. But it was clear that from their point of view, they, they loved African literature, and African literature was uh, Ch- uh, Chinua Achebe's uh, Things Fall Apart, which is a very realistic, very English-style novel. Yep. And it turned out that uh, uh, one of the things I think that Nettie was rebelling against, and, and she's since given me the titles of any number um, of interesting writers, Helen uh, Oyeyemi, I think, is, is one of them, mm-hmm. uh, who are, are, are African writers writing in a, in, in a fantasy no, mode. Part of the problem is that Western literature, that is the literature, literary establishment in England, England yep. and America, likes African literature. Uh, to look like English literature. They want realistic <laughs> political yeah. uh, uh, you know, novels. Interestingly enough, Latin America, decades ago, got away with uh, magic realism, yeah. uh, thanks to Garcia Marquez. And and fantastic, and, and Borges. You know, there's, this, there's this huge tradition of fantastic literature, and, and even some science fiction, in much of uh, South America, and even, even Carlos Fuentes wrote a science fiction novel about Mexico. Yeah. So there, that seems to be safe in Latin America. In 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 Africa, it just seems to be uh, uh, an area ripe for exploitation. I would love to know what uh, I would love to see the first completely African uh, science fiction anthology in English. And I don't yes. know if anybody's working on it, but if not, somebody please do it now. <laughs> I'd love to see it too. It would be an education in and of itself. Um, and there's also that feeling that, uh, I mean, the, the, the only thing as I say you wonder is, does the fiction exist? And I, 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 that's, a, that's a real question. Um, 
But, you know, I think. I, I mean, I, mean I, I literally have no idea. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I find it very hard to believe uh, that uh, people under the age of thirty in uh, a, a large, populous, uh, sophisticated, in many ways sophisticated country like Nigeria, mm-hmm. aren't aware of Western science fiction and are probably doing the same sort of thing that young. Uh, French or young German science fiction writers yeah. uh, have been doing for decades. Now, the flaw in that, of course, is that we're not seeing the work of those young German and French science fiction writers yeah. either. Well, true. You know they're there. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the other thing is, that I guess it depends what you count as being African. I mean, I'm not being at all you know, silly about it, but consider one of our former Locus colleagues, Nick Givers, is African. That's true. You know, I mean, we never really, I don't recall anybody ever having approached him on that level to see what his experiences were. I mean, there's this you know, man who's living in, was it Cape Town or somewhere I think it was, or is, um, and obviously has an experience as a South African at least, and I admit a white South African, which is very different, I'm sure, from uh, a, you know, a, a black uh, South African or a you know, black person right. from anywhere else in Africa. But um, you know, does that he, he may have knowledge that we don't. I, w- I would hope he would. Yeah, you'd think it's the kind of thing you'd look at, you'd seek out. Well, one of the issues that came up with uh, the film, District 9, was that it seemed to be a very South African-oriented film in its, in its portrayal of Nigerians, yes. which made uh, a number of Nigerians uh, and, and, uh, and second-generation Nigerians, like Nettie, very upset for good reason, I think. Mm, yeah, very good. Uh, so, and by, by the same token, the Algerian or Egyptian science fiction, I guess you could say, is actually African science fiction. But when I think of African science fiction in the sense that Nettie's writing it, even though she, her latest novel is really in the Sudan, it's really sub-Saharan Africa, uh, north of you know, South yeah. Africa, yeah. Uh, which is, which is uh, a, a territory that uh, very few of us seem to know anything about. Yeah. Uh, I sur- I sur- but the idea that is so, – so that's what I mean about – Somebody being a courageous young writer, taking chances, uh, you know, pushing into an area that uh, uh, is going to meet resistance from both sides. And uh, I'm I'm a little surprised that Nettie was surprised at the reaction she got from some yeah. of her readers. But um, it's it's she's going to win the she's going to win the war <laughs> in, in the long run. I think. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I, obviously, I don't want to turn anything to an, an outright just ad for something, but I mean. Every month I now I'm trying to sit down and sort of you know, recommend books I look forward to and everything else. How do you think a reasonably average science fiction you know, reader is going to respond to that book? Because I think it's one of those books that people you know, should be reading. I mean, I'm I'm happy to have paid my own money to buy a copy of the book to make sure I can read it. Um, is it something that you know, as someone who's read it and reviewed it, you think that? You know, certainly the average locust reader, as we might perceive them, would respond to that a science fiction reader would respond to. I think people will read largely read it largely as a fantasy novel. Okay. Uh, because of the various uh, wizards and ghosts and sorcerers in it, and uh, I th- it's, it's very approachable. It's very readable. It's very compelling. Uh, there is a strategic decision she makes early on, and I've talked to her about this, and she wondered about it. There's an enormously unpleasant scene that occurs probably a quarter mm-hmm. of the way into the novel that actually has disturbed some readers apparently to the point where they didn't want to finish. It's necessary for that uh, for that moment. There's a, you know there's a disturbing scene about a third of the way into Wind Up Girl, which was also a problem. She needs to do that, but by and large, in terms of understanding what's going on, I think. Many readers will see this as a fantasy novel, not realize until very late in the novel 
that it's actually uh, this this is a spoiler but it's a spoiler which is i think on the um uh a promotional copy for the book that it's set in the sudan that i don't mm-hmm. i don't think that's actually mentioned until the last line of the um novel and you realize this is a far future thing it's one of these things kind of like the ken shoals antiphon series where you yeah. realize well this this is a science fiction novel in which the magic is unexplained but it might not be magic there are ancient computers in it there are water capture devices there there is enough science fiction machinery in it that the science fiction reader can carry through mm. uh, but people want to read this as essentially a supernatural revenge adventure really and that's what it amounts to it's a kind of a hamlet story yeah um is uh, they're going to have no trouble reading it at all. There's mm-hmm. nothing in the book which is challenging in a uh, conceptually uh, a science fictional sense. Well, then clearly uh, you know, our our podcast should officially recommend Who Fears Death. I think we should. Yeah, we can, we can certainly end up uh, recommending Who Fears Death. Um, and it's really the other thing to keep in mind about it is that uh, it's her first adult novel. Yes, I mean, she's written two young adult novels. One. Of which on a distant planet yep. and seemed to be clearly science fiction. The other of which was set in the uh, measurable future. Both of which introduced fantasy elements into what seemed to be a science fiction uh, milieu. Yep. This is this is one of those milieus which I have to admit I'm very fond of, and this may be a lingering effect of Gene Wolfe. Yeah. Uh, where you know, for most of the narrative, you're not really sure whether you're reading fantasy or science fiction. Yeah. And the author's job is to keep you in equipoise to use Kuhn's yeah. term. So. So it works both ways, yeah. and uh, and eventually resolves. But but by and large, I think both readers will be able to both sets of readers will be able to follow the novel with no problems. I, I think one th- one of the things I love about th- just the idea of Nettie Okorafor as a writer is that there are two books of hers that I want that I'm looking forward to with almost equal um, interest, though completely different interest. Who fears mm-hmm. death? Which you know should arrive here in, at the house shortly, and you know I mean she's also writing a Tinkerbell novel. That I did not know. Oh yeah, yeah. She, she's writing uh, Disney pixie fairy books, and I think you know, Nettie writing, you know, you know African American as she as she is, you know, sort of mm-hmm. Tinkerbell pixie books are are just as exciting. And the fact that I'll be able to give that to my eight year old, who will eat it alive and love it, mm-hmm. is a fantastic thing. I, I I love that. I think it's just the best thing. Uh, and I didn't know you didn't know. Yeah, she's been sort of blogging I, every now and again. Every, and I think it's one of the reasons she's been talking about a number of the Disney movies. Obviously, she's got a young daughter of her own. And, yeah, she um, has. Yeah, she's talking about the princess and the frog and whatever else. So, and I, maybe her, you know, somehow that ties into how she ended up you know, writing this novel. Um, I mean, not, I don't think they're very long. I mean, like 30,000, mm-hmm. 40,000 words. But um, something I'm definitely looking forward to. And I, I, I've already spoken to my, my youngest about it, and she's very eager, so... Well, that's one of the things that we probably don't have time now, but since you do have uh, kids 10 and under, yeah. uh, that we, we talked, we've talked about young adult science fiction. And we've talked about the kind of thing that you can – the kind of kids you can send to read Cory Doctorow, um, and we even talked about the lack of girls' adventure fiction. Yeah. But what about science fiction or fantasy that really would be appealing to an 8- or 10-year-old? Uh, and I'm not sure what's out there. The stuff that I can think of, the stuff that I remember experiencing when I was eight or ten, is not stuff that I think would appeal to an eight or ten-year-old today, really. Um, I mean, I was uh, captivated by Citizen of the Galaxy, and I reread it. I think, as I think I said to you, I reread it about mm, three or four months ago, and still loved it. But I mm-hmm. sat there and I thought, would my 
you know, eight and a half year old particularly, who's now, in fact, as we see, I'm, I'm in, standing in my office, and in front of me is a copy of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, all 766 mm. pages of it, of which she's currently on page 102. Uh, and her favorite character in all of literature, literature right now is Hermione Granger. You know, who is eight-year-old Sophie going to respond to in potentially children's science fiction? And there's almost nobody mm. right now. You're right. Um, and when you talk, the feeling I have when you um, interact with people in publishing on this subject is they're willing to countenance the idea of fantasy for children. So, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, like if I want to do an anthology, I could do an anthology of fairy tale stories, a modern fairy tale story, say, for, for eight-year-olds. But if you right. said I want to do a science fiction book for eight or nine or ten-year-olds, I think they'd look at you very strangely, like, what? That kind of stuff? And I think there's also a tendency, and I mean, I can think of writers who could write it, but they don't write it for various reasons. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. because you, I mean, in a sense, you want your John Scalzi's and Cory Doctorow's to write that fiction because they have that knack for writing very approachable fiction that doesn't have uh, excessive density, but also has very attractive characters. And those are the things which they tend to, which I've seen, you know, my daughter respond to at least, and which I recall to some degree responding to. You know, I mean, Citizen of the Galaxy is not a conceptually dense novel at all. Uh, for, not at all. For, for all that it's a, a greatly enjoyable novel. Um, and I'm not sure what the entry level is. I mean, at m- my approach here in terms of, you know, if you like, t- turning my, d- my daughters to the dark side has been to ignore it. I've, uh, they live in a house full of books. They find what they're interested in, and then we sort of support them. I'd like to think there was something that would nudge my daughters to science fiction, and maybe in a couple of years, because certainly I think there are people who are writing stuff for 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Um, which would work very well, assuming it doesn't date too quickly. Um, but nobody before that at all. I mean, I can't think. No, I mean, there have been yeah, there have been picture books. Obviously, there was yeah, I mean, yeah. Jane Yolen, Commander Toad in Space, which were five and I guess yeah. six and seven yeah. year olds. Uh, but this this area in between, there's an interesting article, inter- interestingly enough, in this week's New Yorker about dystopian fiction for young adults. Okay, mostly about the Hunger Games and what's come out of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the author talks about is in her own childhood. There seemed to be a lot more of these things around. There was John Christopher's series for young adults, yeah. uh, the, the the not the Triffins, but the White uh, Mountains yes. uh, trilogy. Yeah, and those were read largely by ten to twelve year olds. I remember reading them, and they're pretty good. They're uh, <laughs> they're they're dystopias. Aliens have taken control of yep. the earth, yep. uh, but but li- but by and large, not uh, not yeah. a lot of people are even shooting for that market anymore. No. Maybe it's not as big a market as I thought. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to assess even the young adult market. It's very profitable, but I don't know. I don't know to what extent it's the actual an actual market per se, or it's a perceived market where adults are buying books, and even yeah, the adults read them themselves. And um, well, I think they're uh, yeah. There, there are two factors. One is I think I'll be very interested in seeing how Paolo's series goes because mm. he has really likable spunky kids and a very likable spunky girl in it, and he, that seems to be very deliberate. Um, the other thing which seems to be going on. Uh, as apart from the various Harry Potter redactions and, and Hunger Games redactions and that sort of thing, there seems to be a fair amount of at least fantasy in uh, young adult or, or kids' novels that are not even uh, marketed as that. Uh, my my mm. grandson's favorite series of novels is, and I cannot remember the name of the author, but I could look it up, uh, it's called the Baseball Card Series. Okay. 
And they're all time travel stories. Uh, a, a young kid collects baseball cards, and if he goes to bed and holds a baseball card next to his heart, he will wake up in the world of Jackie Robinson okay. in New York in 1947, yeah. or, or Honus Wagner or Babe Ruth and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they're all complete time travel fantasies. Um, he doesn't even know that. He thinks yeah. it's just a cool idea for books. and that. So to some extent, science fiction may have become so mainstreamed in children's literature yeah. that we don't even recognize it as science fiction anymore. I could believe that's completely true. I absolutely believe it's true. Um, and it, it is it is interesting because you see that sort of thing more and more. I was going to say we're probably reaching the point where we should wind up. Yes, and there's we a are. there's a few things I mean that that we could touch on. You know, I mean, I actually went to the trouble because you know some, some people keep saying that you know oh, it's nice to see sort of the mix between planned conversation that we have and the way we sort of bounce off one another. When of course, as you know all too well, we just start. And there's no plan. We start planning. We start planning about ten minutes into the conversation. <laughs> well, I, I, well, exactly. I think that today was the first time I actually tried to make a note, and then you know, sort of, um, we bounce away. It's like I was going to touch on the, you know, the British Library acquiring the J.G. Ballard archive, but right. I guess we can try that another time. <laughs> I was going to someone. Mention- had, so, I did want to make this point since we were talking about my ten-year-old grandson, because mm. uh, people were asking us about the iPad. Oh yes. And so I, I, I was, I was taking. Okay, Sleep over the 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 uh, nine year old and the ten year old, and then I took them down to the Apple Store and they got to play with an iPad. And I, I was excited about this because it gives me a chance to play with an iPad. And they found a couple of games on it, flight control and that sort of thing. Uh, ten minutes into it, the iPad was old news to them. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically, they okay. The games are on it. The games are the same ones they've seen. It's a little bit cooler to do it on a big pad. But as far as they're concerned, uh, it's already history. You know, it's just another platform for games. They, they they see the games, but not the platform. And I wonder if that's what's really uh, going to be the long-term history of products like that, that people in our generations get terribly excited about what we can do with it. Kids know exactly what they can do with it. And it turns out it's pretty much the same thing you did with the machines you had before. Well, I was going to say, maybe, that, maybe the, you know, the thing is that, I mean, we all appreciate one, one aspect of it, whereas they just use it. And the fact is that yeah. right now, it's just a different way of doing the same thing. Because it's funny that you had that experience. This week, I had an iPad in the house for two days and really went through all the stages of a romance to the point where I'm not sure I really need one. Um, The first day was magic. I mean, mostly my kids ignored it, but then I sat down with my eldest and I downloaded the Alice in Wonderland for iPad app that was developed. So we looked at Alice in Wonderland and all the awesome animation because it's a great pop-up book really for iPad. And then we sat and we read Winnie the Pooh together for a while and she could see the illustrations and that was really Uh nice. And all the other stuff was of no interest to her or her sister whatsoever. And for me, I went through this thing where I thought, this is great. I love the interface. I'm really happy. It's lots of fun. Then I began to think, but what I primarily want it for is an an e-reader with occasional email. Mm-hmm. And I've found that as I've aged, I've become infinitely distractible. And I'm not sure the fact that my e-reader has email and the internet plugged into it right behind where I'm reading books doesn't mean that I'm running off checking email and stuff all the time rather than sitting there and reading the book. And that's what makes me wonder whether I would actually buy an iPad. And also, as someone who's a, you know, a Sony reader user for two years and everything else, um, the interface is nicer on the iPad, the navigation is nicer on the iPad... But I did begin to wonder about things like you know, the eye strain factor with the backlighting, which surprised me. That's I thought I'd be really relaxed, but no. 
Uh, that is one of the issues which has already come up. The, uh, the the fact is that essentially on an iPad, you are reading on a computer screen, and the whole idea behind the Kindle and the Nook and the Sony Reader mm-hmm. was to get away from the computer screen. Yes, yes, exactly. So and um, the other thing, which yeah. which is of course uh, is days off if it's not there already, or what what are the Android uh, tablets going to look well, like? Well, yes. I mean, I, I guess the thing that I came to, the two things that I came away from with were, were this, that really nobody's developed much specifically for the iPad yet, so we can't right. see what it can really do. And the other is, we're sitting at a point where there was a recent, uh, I read a recent article that said, what, 2% of all book sales, maybe, are ebooks, And of those, the vast majority are read on computers, you know, on desktops, not anywhere else. Half of them are read on desktops. Uh, and like a third or, you know, are, you know, are read on Kindle and then whatever else. And I thought, well, you took a small p- 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 portion of the market. And you know what? I downloaded samples of all sorts of ebooks, and for the most part, they're really badly designed. They're terrible. I, re- I, down- um, I downloaded anthologies yeah. with no links to tables of contents and everything else, so they were hard and fiddly to navigate. I mean, you know, you know, you pick up Gardner Dozois War- and George Martin's Warriors anthology, which is as big as a shoebox, and you just flick through the damn thing. But if you, you don't want to sit there and pick, flick through a thousand screens, it's, that's not the whole kind of thing. I mean, they're they're just badly designed and ugly half the time. So, well, John, yeah, and John Barry was tweeting today about the fact that nobody's really thought about typography for mm. any kind of it, uh, interface, and he's a typographer by yes, profession. very much, very that's much, a very good point. That's an excellent point because uh, a, 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 what you're seeing is a replication of a print page, but you're yes. not looking at a print page, oh, and, and, and I see like, nobody quite knows what the interface is going to be. Exactly. And it's like, I would hand over for subscriptions to Asimov's and FNSF in a heartbeat if they had well-designed electronic editions. Now, I support the magazines. I think everybody should go buy them. That's not the issue. But mm-hmm. I looked at their electronic editions, and I would choose to not read their electronic editions. They are clumsy, unpleasant things. You know? And I think to be selling them... I mean, typically it appears that most people are taking the production print file... And just either printing it to PDF or outputting it as raw HTML and then wrapping it, which is what, what you do. I think uh, that's what they're doing. And I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. I've, I've got a friend who's got a small press, and they they put one of their books up, and it was just as bad. You know, I mean, and now when you and the thing is, for the iPad, right? Everybody points you to Winnie the Pooh. That's that that comes for free when you buy your iPad. It's 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 on the bookshelf. Right, shop, I know. Right? I've played with that in the store. And nice color illustrations, the classic E.B. Shepard illustrations. The typography has been considered to some degree. It lays out nicely. It's a nice app. It works all very nicely. Gorgeous. But the average thing that you get to read when you buy your book from the e-book store right now is fairly foul. Mm-hmm. I know? imagine. And you know, I, I think it's on. Unre- okay, maybe it's unreasonable to expect that, having had as many years to develop, you know, books as we have, that e-books should come along uh, any more quickly. But, you know, everybody seems to think, well, of course we're going to make this leap. They're going to be really attractive reading experiences. And, I mean, I, neither of us, I think, are at all hostile to reading, reading electronically. I think it's very, really important we should make that clear. You have a, a Sony book reader and read with it. I have one. You read on your laptop and you, you read PDFs on it. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that. That's how I've been reading The Dervish House, for example. And I'm reading a, you know, a PDF on my Sony reader for the Greg Egan novel that I'm reading. So I've got no particular barriers to that. I've acclimated myself to reading electronic and everything. But these things are just unnecessarily clumsy. And I think it's it's almost offensive, right, that they want us to pay almost as much for this poorly executed electronic thing as they do for their well-executed print object. 
you know i think and yeah yeah, you get the sense no one is thinking about what it needs to look like on a screen and and this this is the 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 underlying philosophy which bothers me about a lot of the ebook platforms is the assumption they're just books Mm. you know you can give them to the readers in any form and they'll take them because after all they're just books and you realize i can understand why somebody like john barry who takes a great deal of pride in his skill would be upset about the fact that nobody seems to be thinking about making these things look no no it's like i mean imagine this just for a second because i thought about this as i was looking at uh winnie the pooh imagine that harper collins hello harper collins uh seriously took, took took this as a thing and they took the hobbit classic young adult novel or children's novel and they accessed the ocean of artwork which they own i mean the ocean of alan lee artwork and everything else you could make a sumptuous gorgeous app that you could sell all by itself for quite a reasonable amount of money and people would buy it because they could sit with their kids they could look at the illustrations they could go through them it could be a wonderful interactive experience but even even when i say that you can tell it takes time it takes thought and for the most part, what everybody else is doing, and HarperCollins may be doing that, and if you are, I'm happy to send you my credit card number. But um, for most people, for, for most it just seems to be print to PDF, put it on the website. That's the impression I'm getting as well. And so right. maybe we haven't seen an ebook yet. Maybe we haven't seen a real ebook yet at all. Yeah, I think we're, we're, you know, it, it may be that there, 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 I mean, that you see some inklings. I mean, for example, um, I mean, Tor.com. They've put the Hugo-nominated stories from Tor.com up on the the iPad store for free, and they've formatted them really quite nicely. They're, they're, and the thing is, to be, to, it, it's not like it has to be a vastly complicated thing. It just has to be thought about and executed. And so far, it's you know, I'm not encountering much. And I've, as I say, I made a point of looking at a number of places. I looked at the Bain Web subscription stuff, which people use. I looked at um, you know, things from major New York publishers. I looked at small press magazines. And, you know, I mean, I was waiting to see maybe there's a small press somewhere who are actually taking a lot of extra care because they're a small press, but I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those things where once, it's, once it gets done, I think it'll take off. So, Or take off more. All right. Anyway, on we'll that note, see. it was great talking to you, my friend, as always. Great talking to you again. And I'll uh, look forward to it. Absolutely. I will see you next week. Okay. Talk to you next week. Take care. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.